Marriage is a covenant. It's a, it's a covenant. When two people get married, they enter into a covenant relationship with each other. They walk down the aisle, and what do they do? They pledge themselves to one another. They enter into the covenant of marriage. There is even a, a saying that arose, and I researched it, and I couldn't like pin it down. There was kind of some variance in the information out there, but I looked at that phrase, to tie the knot. Are you familiar with, with that? People are getting married, and you say, oh, you're going to tie the knot, right? And the best I could come up with is the phrase is dating back to at least as far back as the 1200s and had to do with this idea of the two that were married that would come together and join hands and the minister would literally tie a, a, a knot around their hands and they would be joined together in this idea of tying the knot or coming together. And I think it speaks of what marriage is. It's, it's a coming together, it's a joining together. It's a giving to each other, one another. The, you, you, the, the, the bride gives herself to the groom. The groom give, uh, gives himself to the bride. And then it was a couple of weeks ago in a message that I called the divine romance, and I suggested that the plan of God was seen in, a, in two things, really. The plan of God uh, in his redemption and his restoration and his calling of those that would come into his family, into his kingdom, was seen really in two things. There was the calendar of the feasts uh, that we find in the book of Leviticus, specifically in, ver in chapter 23. And then I talked to you that night about uh, another thing where we see the divine plan, and that was the ancient Jewish wedding and the process that is involved in that ancient Jewish uh, wedding and the bringing for uh, together of two people uh, in that ancient Jewish process. And the first part of the process uh, that we learned about was the process where the bridegroom would pay a, a price, a price for the bride. And this is at, was actually known as the bride price, right? The bride price. So the the groom or the bridegroom would come and pay a price for the bride. There would be that bride price that would be paid. And we, we talked about that last week as we looked at Passover and specifically how Passover was the picture in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the moment in time in the New Testament where Jesus, the bridegroom, paid the bride price as he gave himself at Passover and became the Passover lamb. And we talked about how Jesus was and is our Passover lamb and that he came into the city, into the family of Israel on the 10th day of Nisan, which was that month that God declared that would be their first month of their calendar. But also he came in according to a specific prophecy, a prophecy of that was a prophecy of 490 years that was found in Daniel chapter 9. We won't go back through that tonight, but anybody who was here last week, we did. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, exactly 173,880 days from the day that the command was given by Artaxerxes, 
on March 14th, 445 BC to the exact day. And that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not just about any day, but a a particular day, a specific day. And so when Jesus rode into town in Jerusalem and presented himself as Messiah Prince, he was presenting himself on the day, the day that the Lord had made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Aren't you glad? Aren't you rejoicing today that Jesus rode into town on that day? And then just a couple days later, Jesus would become our Passover lamb. And of course, that happened exactly on the day that it was foretold. So we come to the next part. The next part of the ancient Jewish feast, the next feast in the calendar of feasts of Israel. The next part of the ancient Jewish wedding was the establishment of the the marriage covenant. The first part was the paying of the bride price. The second part was the establishment of the marriage covenant. The next feast in Israel's calendar was the feast of unleavened bread. So you had the first one, which was Passover. The second one was the feast of unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread speaks of the marriage covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. Amen? The commandment for the Feast of Unleavened Bread is found in Leviticus 23. We're going to read it here in a second, picking it up in verse 6. And what what we will see in, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread is we will see the nature of the bridegroom. We're going to see the marriage covenant, and we're going to see the nature of the bridegroom. So let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 23. Verse six, it says this. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation and you shall do no customary work on it. So here we have the command. The command in Leviticus 23, this entire chapter of Leviticus 23, is the command to celebrate seven specific feasts, and it's given, really, it's a command to celebrate the feast, to observe the feast, and it's given, really, the day, like the the timing, the date uh, in the calendar, uh, where this, that particular feast would be celebrated. Uh, specifically, we have the instructions laid out of exactly how to go about celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that is also found in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, also in that same place where the instructions were given for the celebration and the observance of Passover. And of course, on that particular one, that first one was the utmost importance of getting, of doing it right, right? You know, I mean, it was like, you know, hey, the, the, the death angel's gonna come and pass over and you wanna make sure you get that blood of the lamb up on that doorpost. <laughs> you don't wanna skimp and, you know, whatever. You wanna make sure if you do anything, if you do anything, 
you make sure you get that blood up on the doorposts. And it's kind of a reminder, hey, if you, you know, get, get yourself under the blood of Jesus, you know? I mean, get, get under the, the cleansing blood of Jesus. He's the one that wants to, to, to forgive you of your sins. He's, he loves you. He wants to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And just make sure you come to him. Come to him. Amen? So... The Feast of Unleavened Bread is closely associated with Passover because it was a feast that would take place directly after Passover. And really, it was so close together. I mean, you have Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread starting the next day for seven days. It was so close that like many people think of them as being, you know, one in the same feast. They kind of just go together, you know, like, I don't know, peanut butter and jelly or, you know, all, you know, all those things that go, peas and carrots. Um, come on, help me out. Oh, come on, come on. What? Love and marriage. Love and marriage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would, that would be appropriate for this message. Love and marriage, right? Surfing in California. Yeah, that's good. That's good. One last one. Anybody? Anybody give you one more? Okay. Anyways, they, they kind of go together. Passover and unleavened bread. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast that started the day after Passover. The uh, Passover was on the 14th day of Nisan. Uh, unleavened Bread would start on the 15th day of Nisan and run for seven days. Uh, and it started uh, the day after Passover, and it commemorated Israel's departure from Egypt in haste with no time to let their dough rise. It's kind of like, hey, you're going to have this, you're going to have unleavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened bread, right? You're not going to have any leaven in your bread. In other words, there's not going to be, this isn't going to be, this is going to be flatbread, you know? Like a flatbread pizza or a flatbread, you know, I don't know, these little chips, these, yeah, little pita chips or whatever. I actually saw, um, maybe I was studying about this and I said something, and next thing I know, I did have an ad for pita chips uh, in, it, it, it come up, you know? So at least they're listening to the sermon preparation and, you know. <laughs> Various things. One of these days we're going to get, get Siri saved. I, well, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But there she is. Um, going to get you saved. Um, so we're going to have this Feast of Unleavened Bread because it commemorated that time of their departure. Commemorated the time of the departure of Egypt, coming out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so there would be no time for their dough, the dough to rise. And this was given, again, in, in the instructions in Exodus 12. So from the 14th day until the next day on the 15th, and then for the next seven days, they were to eat, they were not to eat unleavened bread. They would be eating, they were not to eat leaven in their bread. They would be eating unleavened bread. In fact, on the 14th day of Nisan, each family was instructed to go through their home and take anything with leaven out of the house. This was the instruction that would be, they would, they would do this every year at the Feast of Passover, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that they were, the, the Jewish people were commanded to do, that they would go throughout the house and they would take all the leaven out of their house. It wasn't just like, no bread, no leaven in your bread. It was like, hey, we're going to go even one step further. We're going to get all the leaven out of the house. We're not going to have any leaven in this house. And so even to this day, you will see that 
that observant Jews will observe this. They will go through the house at this time while you're picking up your Easter egg dye kit or whatever, little thing with the little pellets and you're going to put them in the vinegar water and all that stuff. They're worried about getting the leaven out of the, the house. No leaven in the house. They were not to eat leaven or have any leaven in the house during the feast. So what was this about? The feast prophetically looked forward in expectation not to continually eating unleavened bread, but the unleavened one that would come. Amen? Remember the Bible, in the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. There's actually two pictures for sin in the Bible, and they both start with the letter L. I don't know how that happened, just in the English language. It's a, you know, but anyways, probably not in the Hebrew, but in the English, you have leaven and you have leprosy. Both of them in the Bible are a picture for us of sin. And they both picture different aspects of sin, but specifically, leaven was something that pictured sin in the sense that it came in when you put leaven into the dough it would make the dough rise and so in in that sense it kind of puffed up the bread and so in that sense it you can kind of see where it's a picture of sin it's literally the picture of the chief of all sins which is pride because pride puffs up it was pride that that puffed up uh, in, in Satan, when you have recorded in Isaiah the five I will statements of Lucifer, of Satan himself, who said, I will, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above, uh, you know, to the heights of the, the mountain and the congregation of the assembly, right? So it's, it's pride that kind of puffs up. And so really, the Feast of Unleavened bread is is kind of getting rid of that leaven, getting rid of the sin. And so it's a picture for us too. Um, And I think that activity that was given to Israel of getting the leaven out of the house is something that we should allow to speak to us. Because there is something that we can do in, in that process. Well, the first part of the process is and we're going to get to this at the end, is where the unleavened one is going to come and he's going to get the leaven out of the house. Amen? Yes. Praise the Lord. Yes. He's the only one that can truly get it out of the house. But I think there's that, that activity that we could participate in going through the house and getting the, the things, uh, getting the leaven out of the house. And, and, and there, there were things in their house and there, there were things in houses that, that came into the house that would be things that would defile the house, that would corrupt the house. In fact, there was a way that they would go in and actually inspect even down to the, to the, to the walls to see if there was uh, you know, contamination in the walls and things. It was this type of an inspection. And, uh, and so let it, let it be kind of a, something that speaks to us about you know, make, you know, looking at our house and making sure that we're not letting leaven creep into the house. And maybe we need a time of going through the house and getting the leaven out. And maybe there's some things that, that God would speak to you tonight 
about because we're specifically addressing this and we're specifically looking at it as they would get the leaven out of their house, that God would speak to you about something that, you know what, you really need to let go of. Something in your, in your, in your house specifically, in, in, uh, in your temple, uh, that, that is, 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 is not right, is not something that is pleasing to the Lord. I'm not going to sit up here and start naming stuff and, and going off and you know, getting, get, you know, get, get, getting on anyone's case or getting on my case. I, I think the Holy Spirit present here can, can, can tap you on the shoulder right now and kind of let you know, you know what? Hey, this thing over here, this particular thing, I, 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 I want out of the house. I want out of the house. And God's faithful, amen, to be there for us, to, to be the one that, that's going to help us. But not only... Was it unleavened bread? But it's, it, it pointed forward to the unleavened one. The unleavened one. So leaven speaks of sin. To be unleavened was to be without sin, to be blameless before God. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he fulfills, just as he fulfilled Passover and Paul said, he's, he's our Passover lamb. He fulfilled Passover perfectly right on time, right at the exact moment that it, was, that, 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 that it was to be fulfilled. But he also fulfills unleavened bread. How is that? Well, he is the unleavened one. He is the one that has no sin. He has no leaven in him. At Passover, Jesus and his disciples gathered in the upper room to celebrate and eat the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And remember, this was the particular one that, that Jesus looked forward to. He looked forward to with anticipation, celebrating, of eating the feast of Passover, of, of being there at unleavened bread with his disciples. And we talked about that as, as far as, you know, can you imagine, you know, the, the, there's the dual nature of Christ, right? right? There's the, the, you know, the the wood of the ark and the gold overlaid on top of it. So you had the, the human nature and the God nature. And can you ma- imagine in his human nature and the frailty of his human nature, uh, looking forward to celebrating the feast of unleavened bread? So they're celebrating uh, there in the upper room and, and, and they've got the, the, the feast there. And they're eating the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're eating the, the, the Passover lamb. They're eating the unleavened bread. We see it all there as they're, as they're eating the, unleavened, uh, the Passover feast. But then we're reminded that as we got to the end of the feast, we get to the end of that particular feast and Jesus does something. He, 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 he takes the bread of that feast and he kind of, in a way, introduces a new meal that we celebrate to this day in the church. And, and we, we call it communion or the, you know, the, the Lord's table or these various names, the Eucharist in some circles. But he took the bread of that particular feast of Passover of unleavened bread and he gave to the disciples at that time a new covenant. You see, they were Jews, he was a Jew, and they were under the old covenant. There's a reason why there was 
we have what we call an Old Testament and a New Testament. Amen? Testament is just a, a word that actually is the word, it means covenant. So, you, so we did have, an, there was an old covenant. But Jesus came, he fulfilled the old, and he introduced the new covenant. He introduced this new covenant. Now, according to Luke's account in chapter 22 of Luke 22, Jesus told his disciples that he, he greatly desired and looked forward to celebrating the Passover with them. And during the Passover, Jesus, he, he, uh, he took the bread, the unleavened bread, prepared for the feast, and he said this in Luke 22, verse 19. I'll have it up on the screen. He said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Can you imagine that moment? I think there would be some things going through the disciples' heads at that moment where they're now beginning to realize, because this is a feast that they had celebrated every year of their lives as observant Jews. They had eaten that feast, the Passover. They had eaten the 11 bread of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here they are with Jesus in this rented upper room in Jerusalem. And he is now taking the bread and he's saying, this bread is my body broken and given for you. Whoa, whoa. When Jesus said, take and eat this bread, it is my body, he was saying, he was declaring to them, I am the unleavened one. This bread, this unleavened bread that you've been eating, yet it, it, it spoke of me the entire time. Every time you ate it your entire life, this spoke of me. I am the unleavened one. Who is Jesus? Well, let's answer the question this way tonight. He's the unleavened one. Yeah. Amen? Yes. He's the unleavened one. Jesus was the sinless one. Jesus is the sinless one. Later that night, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was taken to stand trial before the chief priest and the Jewish council. And of course, when they brought him in, and arrested him, they had kind of brought him in on all these charges. They had this series of, of charges of tax evasion, of, 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 blasphemy, of, of, of blasphemy against their laws, but treason against Rome even is what they were going to try to ultimately frame him with. But the Jewish leaders could not carry out the sentence for a crime of blasphemy because they were under the Roman occupation. They were under the Roman rule. And so they, in, in that subservient position, they had to appeal to the Roman authorities. And so the Sanhedrin, once they ruled and came to the conclusion that Jesus had, had, had committed blasphemy, they had to send him away to Pilate. They, they sent Jesus away to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And, he, and, and hoping that he would give them what they wanted, he, he would execute Jesus. So they led Jesus bound to what was called the Praetorium. And uh, they brought him in, and there he was with, with Pilate. And it was so funny. Well, it's not funny. None of this is really funny, but it's so, what's the word? I guess petty, that here they did send Jesus away to the praetorium 
after they had ruled the Sanhedrin that he was guilty of blasphemy, but they wouldn't actually go in to the praetorium because it was a, it was a Gentile area. So according to their customs, according to their traditions, they couldn't go into the Gentile area because that would defile themselves. But here they were setting Jesus up on trumped up charges and trying to get an execution of, 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 of one of theirs, of one of their people. Jesus had already, in, in his discussion with them, he had already given them all these woes. He said, woe to you Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes. You know, you do this and you do this and you do this. And one of the things he says is you, you strain out the gnats while you eat a camel, while you swallow a camel. What's that? They could, you, you, a Jew couldn't eat couldn't swallow gnats because they were unclean. They couldn't eat a camel because it was unclean. But here they are straining out the gnats out of their soup while they're swallowing. Jesus says, you're swallowing a whole camel. This is what you're doing. So they're straining the gnats out of their soup, but eating the camel. So Pilate goes in and he calls for Jesus and Pilate begins to question Jesus about the accusations against him. What were the accusations? Well, they said, to Pilate, he's, he claims he's the king. He claims he's a king, right? And so if you have someone that's claiming, here's how they're setting it up. He is claiming he's a king, so this was an act of, of uh, positioning himself as a king, as a political rival to the throne of Rome, to Caesar. It was a charge of treason. And so Pilate asked Jesus, he says, are you a king? Now, Jesus responds to his question with a question. I, 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 I like Jesus. <laughs> Amen? If you don't know how to answer a question, just ask a question. Not that Jesus didn't know how to answer the question. Surely he did, but he asked the question. He says, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you about this concerning me? He wants to know, are you, are you wondering about this? Are you asking about this? Or are you... Have they put you up to this? And he says, look, I'm not a Jew. I'm not involved with your things and your traditions and your issues. This has obviously been brought to, brought to him. So then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate asks again, oh, you are a king then. Jesus says, this is the reason I was born. And he goes on and he says all this back and forth. They have this back and forth discussion. Pilate goes back after this back and forth questioning. He goes out to the people and he says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. He finally, after you read through the whole scene, you realize that he, he actually ends up having Jesus scourged. He actually has him beaten severely scourged, releases Barabbas, that whole exchange, the prisoner exchange situation. And he brings him out again after all that and he says, I find no fault in him. So this is, this is the, the, the Judean governor of, from the Roman government declaring to the nation twice 
I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. You see, Jesus was the unleavened one. And even Pilate was used by God to testify of that to the nation. I find no fault in him. I find. See, God will use people. You think, oh, well, how could God use that person? How could God use this person? God is using a bunch of people that you would just, that we would all say, well, no, I wouldn't do it that way, and I wouldn't do it that way. And, and, and God used a whole bunch of people all the way through Scripture, and here God's using Pilate to declare to the nation that he found no fault in Jesus. At the feast the night before, Jesus told his disciples that the unleavened bread of the feast was, was himself and specifically his body that was given as a perfect, sinless, unleavened sacrifice. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is Jesus' covenant between himself and his people. He's literally presenting himself to the people, and he's saying, this is who I am. I'm the unleavened one. I'm the sinless one. I'm the one, and I'm here for you. This is my body. Take it and eat. Take it and eat, right? So I kind of want to wrap this up by doing something that's actually important for Christians to understand, the difference between a covenant and a contract. Amen? The difference between a covenant and a contract. A covenant is different than a contract. In a contract, two parties agree to give one another something of value. A good example is when you go to buy a new car, right? Go to buy a new car. The dealer has the car. You hopefully have enough cash to purchase it. You have a contract that says, I agree to pay X number of dollars for this car. You give the cash. The dealer gives the car. And then you both kind of go your separate ways. You have the contract. You have the fulfilled contract. And you both get what you want out of the deal. And both people go their separate ways. That's a contract, right? A covenant is different. A covenant relationship is totally different. In a covenant, the two parties involved, a covenant is giving of yourself to the other party. In a a contract, the two parties get what they want out of the deal and they go their separate ways. In a covenant, the two parties involved get each other. And so you see a covenant relationship is you giving yourself to, to someone and someone else giving themselves to you. So let me give you an example of this. When they entered into covenant relationship with these, even after, even after they were told not to do certain things, but they, you know, Israel and even Jacob and his family entered into covenant relationship where they agreed to give themselves to one another, right? Like, you're going to marry our daughters, we're going to give our sons to your daughters, and you're going to give your daughters to our sons, and, and we're, we're entering into this covenant, right? So that's the idea. So when you enter into a covenant, there is a giving to each other of each other, right? So that's the difference between a covenant and a contract. And this is the, ev- the essence of a marriage covenant, right? We, we've, we've come a long way from that, from that, this idea in this country because really a marriage certificate in a lot of ways in terms of the law, is treated a lot more like a contract, right? It's, tr- it's, it's, 
and, and even in the, and I don't want to trample out into this, this realm because that's not really the topic tonight specifically, but when you get into the specific topic of marriage, there is more to it than just a legal financial certificate of some kind, contract. It's, it's, it's marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. And this is the essence of the marriage covenant. The two individuals involved get each other, and it's a beautiful thing. In presenting himself as the unleavened one and offering to his disciples to eat the unleavened bread that represented his body, Jesus gave us the new covenant. He was presenting himself to us. And he still continues to do that. See, because what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, what I receive from the Lord, I, I give to you, right? He took the bread. He broke it. He gave thanks. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. It was presented, Jesus presented himself to the disciples on that particular night, a Passover and unleavened bread. But, he, but that offer goes to every single person that is alive. His life is presented to you. This is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. And that's the, that's the offer of the gospel. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And John 6, and that's when they all left, the crowds left. And, 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 and he turns to the disciples and, and, and he says, are you guys leaving too? Because it was a hard saying. It's the, the idea of literally receiving Christ, of partaking of Christ. Amen? So Jesus said, speaking of the unleavened bread that he was offering to them, he said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. In eating the unleavened bread of communion, the, the Eucharist, in faith, we are entering into a covenant with Jesus Christ. By eating the bread and drinking the cup, we get him, we receive him. You see, how, how, how is it that you're saved? Right? How is it? You believe and receive. To as many as believe upon him and receive him, believe and receive. So when you receive him, you get him. You get him. Amen? You get Jesus. By eating the bread and drinking the cup, we get him, but also he gets us. And this is what I want to drive home to you in this, this closing couple of moments because I want this to forever change your perspective on your day-to-day -day life as a Christian and specifically when you come to the table of the Lord. Because what is in our minds mostly from our, the teaching that we've received is, wow, wow, it's so great to receive Christ. It's so great to receive Christ. But that is kind of a reaffirmation that we're in covenant with Christ when we eat that meal, Right? And so it should be a reminder not only that we've received Christ, but that we have given ourselves to him. Because if this is truly a covenant, then we understand this isn't a contract, this is a covenant. He's presented himself as the unleavened one to us. We are presenting ourselves in our fallen, woeful state. And he takes us. <laughs> he takes us in. He says, I'll take you. I'll take you. No one else wanted you. I'll, I'll take you, you know?
They're the last one picked. You know, when they were picking, picking up teams for kickball. <laughs> Jesus comes along and says, I'll, I'll take you. I'll pick you. I'll pick you. So he's the unleavened one. He's the sinless one. And I want to close with this question. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? Jesus gave his perfect self for us. We need to give ourselves to him. Amen? Amen? All of, all of us to him. Give everything to him. I am amazed to think of what Jesus gave. Did he, did he, gave, he gave it all. He gave everything. He didn't hold anything back. You know, he, before he was taken into custody, they were praying in the garden. And it was in that moment that the Bible tells us that he, he literally prayed, and it says he sweat drops of blood. Drops of blood came out of his forehead. And you talk about the intensity of that moment. There's a place that you can go in Israel in the Mount of Olives. It's actually called the Rock of Agony. And it was, of all the places that I visited, it was... The, it was the most moving in the sense that I thought about what Jesus prayed in that place. He said, if there's any other way, Lord, take this cup from me. What cup? He was about to drink the cup of God's wrath that was meant for us. He said, if there's any, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself in the humanity of Christ, submitting himself to the will of the Father for redemption. And if anyone ever says, when, if, if you find the exclusive nature of salvation in Christ challenged, say, well, if there is any other way, to be saved. That would have been a good moment for the father to go, yeah, you know what? There's another way. Don't, don't worry about it. I'm just going to whisk you out of right. I'm just going to come and whisk you out of here. I mean, he had taken other people before. He could do that again. He'd take it. He took Enoch. He took Elijah. Could, could have taken Jesus, but no. There was no other way. This was the way. This was the way. And he gave it all for us. And the invitation is to come and to receive him and then to give all of yourself to him. And in doing so, you'll find your life. You'll find yourself. And you'll have life in him. You'll be in covenant, covenant relationship with God, the God who made you, the God who loves you.